The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I want to talk with you this morning about holiness. And after this week, we'll be launching into our Bible Project curriculum. And we'll sort of be mapping out um, the lessons then. But uh, for today, I want to talk about this topic of holiness. And I want to begin by simply asking you, what comes to mind when you think about God's holiness? I think if we're honest, a lot of us struggle to grasp what God's holiness is about. When it comes to his other attributes, like his love and his faithfulness, we, we have a better idea because uh, of our relationships with friends or with our spouse. And these earthly relationships kind of um, tell us about what these things are, like love and faithfulness. But when it comes to holiness, we don't really have any reference points or any parallels in our world. And so it's really hard for us to understand what God's holiness is really about. And one of the purposes of why God gave the law to the Old Testament Israelites was to teach them about the holiness of God. And it's clear when you read the Old Testament and study the history of Israel that they really struggled to understand this lesson and to take it seriously. At the dedication of the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple, we find this interesting story of Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 to 2, it says, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. This passage is confusing and even troubling to many of us. Why were Aaron's sons killed that day? I think Aaron's silence speaks volumes, doesn't it? Capital punishment for lighting unauthorized fire. I mean, what happened? What did it mean that they offered unauthorized fire? Why was this such a terrible offense that deserved death? That word unauthorized could actually be translated as foreign. And some have wondered if what they were doing was sort of adopting the practices of the pagan nations around them and incorporating it into Israelite worship. It's also interesting that right after this incident, there is this command that's given in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So scholars have wondered why the sudden warning about drinking alcohol to the priesthood in this moment. Could it have been that Nadab and Abihu were under the influence of alcohol, which caused them to get a bit sloppy about what they were doing there that day, the kind of fires that they were lighting to God? 
Leviticus 16 actually gives us more details about the immediate aftermath after these two passed away. In Leviticus 16, verse 1 to 2, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover of the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. In light of this warning, some have wondered if Aaron's sons might have entered the most holy place where only the high priest was to enter once a year. Well, whatever the specific details may be, the overall picture is one of carelessness and disregard for God's commands regarding worship in the tabernacle. And so God uses the death of his sons as a critical teaching moment for Aaron to make sure that he understands the seriousness of what has just happened. And so in Leviticus 10, verses 10 through 11, it says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And so the message was very clear. A holy God is living in your midst. Therefore, all of these commands about what is clean and what is unclean, you need to take these things seriously. God's holiness is hard to understand because the essence of holiness is describing God's otherness. The fact that he is so vastly different than us. In other words, holiness is describing the huge gap that exists between us and God. And there are many aspects to God's holiness, but at the most basic level, the word holy literally means to separate, to set apart. R.C. Sproul writes in The Holiness of God, the primary meaning of holy is to separate. It comes from an ancient word that means to cut or to separate. God's holiness is more than just separateness. His holiness is also transcendent. Transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. And the prophet Isaiah encountered the transcendent holiness of God in his vision captured in chapter 6 of his book. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah's reaction to the holiness of God is instructive for us. Woe to me. I am ruined. You know, in the Old Testament, the woe was a very specific type of prophecy. 
It was a prophecy of judgment, often accompanied by a lament for the person or the group receiving that judgment because of the calamity that would fall on them when this prophecy would come true. And confronted with the holiness of God, Isaiah's visceral response is to utter a woe on himself, a judgment on himself. No one, in other words, had to convince Isaiah to fear the Lord in that moment. He felt it to the depth of his being as he stood in the holiness of God. I think this phrase, the fear of the Lord, makes a lot of us uncomfortable. If God is good and he is gracious, why should we fear him? And there is an unhealthy fear, like the kind of fear that a child has to an abusive parent. But scripture is firm on this truth, that there is also a healthy, reverent fear of God that flows from an understanding of his holiness. You know, as I was preparing this message, I thought about past moments in my life when I really felt fear. And I'm not talking about a slight worry. I'm talking about heart-pounding, lump-in-your-throat, pit-in-your-stomach kind of fear. Can you actually call to memory moments when you felt like that? What I realized as I thought about that was that those moments were a regular occurrence in my childhood. Presenting a book report in front of my class terrified me. Going to the dentist... I had a lot of cavities when I was young. Playing my musical instrument in front of a room filled with strange adults that I didn't know for a musical recital. But here was the thing, that as an adult, those moments of fear definitely became rarer, way rarer. Of course, as an adult, you cannot totally avoid those moments, right? You get them like when the cop pulls up behind you and flashes his lights. And you know that feeling in your stomach, right? Shoot, I'm caught. I remember holding my daughter Joy's hand. She lay in a hospital gurney and was about to be wheeled into a major operation. And just the sheer fear that began to creep into my heart, wondering if she was going to be okay. But I don't come across moments like that very often the older I get. And that's why they're so startling when they happen in these later years of my life. But here's the question. Why don't these moments of fear occur more regularly as I get older? I think it has a lot to do with the issue of control. As a child, we have so little control over our lives. Parents and other authority figures tell us what to do and where to go. Whether we like it or not, we have no say in the matter. And we're constantly forced into new situations and experiences in childhood that bring about a lot of anxiety because there's so much unknown. But here's the thing. The older we get, the more control we gain over our lives. And there are fewer people who can tell us what to do or make us do things that we don't want to do. And as an adult, we learn how to arrange our lives in such a way 
that we can avoid most of our fears and eliminate almost all the unknowns. Here's the danger. The danger is we can apply that same strategy in our relationship with God. One of the, I think, telling ways to describe religion is to say that religion, at least man-made religion, is our attempt to control and to domesticate God. You see, the proper response to holiness is worship. But the approach of religion is this. How can I manipulate God in order to get him to do the things that I need out of this life? And this is the way that religion was practiced among the pagan nations in the Old Testament. They would practice what was known as divination, reading signs in nature or performing certain rituals in order to get answers from the gods so that they could gain some semblance of control over the future. They also employed magic to tap into the power of the gods in order to gain control over their world, whether it was about political or military victory or a better harvest that year. In other words, through certain religious practices, they believed that they could get the gods to do their bidding. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations and a witness to the true God. But instead, they became influenced by these nations. And they began to treat God in the same manner as these pagans did. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 12 says, And you shall know that I am Yahweh. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. In other words, rather than influencing them, you are beginning to mimic their behavior. The days of Ezekiel as the judgment of God was coming and the armies of Nebuchadnezzar were at their gates. The Jewish women in Jerusalem sewed these magic charms. And told the people to attach it to their arms. Because if they did so, then God would protect them. They would not experience harm. In Ezekiel 13, verse 20, 21, it says, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against your magic charms, with which you ensnare people like birds. And I will tear them from your arms. I will set free the people that you ensnare like birds. I will tear off your veils and save my people from your hands. And they will no longer fall prey to your power. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. The message was very clear. I am not one to be manipulated by magic or ritual. I am Yahweh, the sovereign and living God who is among you. And the repeated message of the prophets to his people was that the God you worship is holy. He cannot be controlled through the exercise of religious rituals and practices. The holiness of God, in other words, describes the untamable otherness of God. The days of Jeremiah, false prophets arose to refute Jeremiah's prophecies and warnings of the coming judgment on Israel. And they used the faithfulness of God. That's the crazy thing. They used the faithfulness and goodness of God as an argument that God would never allow Jeremiah's prophecies to come true. How could he allow such horror to happen to his beloved city and to his beloved people after all? And in Jeremiah 29, we see these words of God. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. 
All my bones tremble. I am like a drunken man, like a strong man, overcome by wine because of the Lord and his holy words. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of Yahweh to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. You know, in the days before Saul became king, the Israelites went to war against the Philistines, and they were badly routed on that first day of battle, losing almost 4,000 soldiers. So they hatched this plan to bring the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, thinking that that would surely secure their victory. After all, whenever Moses had it, they won the war. And it seemed like an airtight logic. God would never let his ark fall into enemy hands. And so if we bring the ark to the front lines, then God would have to give us the victory and defeat the Philistines. And so when Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, the high priest, and the other priesthood brought the ark to the Israelite camp, a great shout erupts among the soldiers. And the Philistines hear the shout and say, what's going on? And they find out that the ark was brought to the Israelite camp. And this is the interesting testimony of the Philistines themselves. They shake in terror and they say, a God has come into the camp. I mean, what a Hollywood moment. It's like a scene out of Braveheart, right? And the entire stage is set for an epic victory for the Israelites. You almost suspect fire to rain down from heaven and completely wipe out the Philistine army. But then the unthinkable happens. The armies of Israel are slaughtered that day. And every single priest that accompanied the ark were slaughtered. And the ark was taken by the Philistines as just one more spoil of war. When news reached Eli, the, the father of Hophni and Phinehas, that his sons were dead and the ark was taken. He falls back in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. Phineas's wife was in the midst of labor when she heard the news that her husband and her father-in-law had died and the ark was taken. And when that son was born, she named that child Ichabod, which means no glory. And she testified, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark has been captured. Here's the question. How did things go so wrong? I think the problem was this. What was demonstrated on the battlefield that day was not faith, but superstition. An attempt to manipulate God for their own agenda. And God said, I will have none of this. The ark would be displaced for the next 20 years through the entire reign of Saul and into the reign of David. And when David ascended the throne... And made Jerusalem the capital. He had it in his heart to bring the ark back home. And to locate it in Jerusalem where it could once again be the center of Israelite worship. But even as the ark was being transported to Jerusalem. Again we see a sloppiness taking place. 
similar to what happened with Nadab and Abihu, because the law of God was very clear in how this ark was to be transported. It was built in with these rings so that a pole could go inside each side because God said no human hands are ever to lay hands on this. And so only the Levites are to carry the ark. That is the only authorized way to transport it. But I think David just saw that as an unnecessary detail. And so he throws it on an ox cart. And sure enough, as the oxen are carrying the ark, they stumble. And Uzzah reaches his hand out to steady it. And in that moment, Uzzah is killed by God. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8 to 10, it says, And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And then this is the interesting commentary that's given right after that. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Witnessing Uzzah's death, David experiences two emotions. The first is anger, and then the second one is fear. He is angry because from his perspective, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. This is, in his view, God in excess. But with that anger comes fear and confusion. David doesn't seem sure anymore whether he even wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem in light of what happened. I mean, if this is what happens when we're just transporting it, what is this going to mean for us to have the ark right there in our presence by our homes? David was reminded in a very powerful way that day, the God who is in the midst of you is holy. I wish that as your pastor, I could tell you that I have consulted the best commentaries and heard from the best scholars, and can explain these stories in a way that makes total sense, and to make God's actions seem reasonable to our sensibilities. But I can't. You see, we want a God that we can fully understand, and even predict. A God who always meets our expectations. We want God to make sense, whose choices seem reasonable to us. But to say that God is holy means that he is infinitely above and beyond our comprehension so that we can never fully fathom his ways. Let me say this. I know many of us here at ICC do have a a very sincere and intense desire to know God more, to know him, to understand his ways. And that's a great thing. That's an essential part of discipleship. That was Jesus' invitation of discipleship after all. Matthew 11, right? Come learn of me. But the more that we learn about God, the greater exists the temptation to domesticate him. To put God in a box of our own assumptions and expectations and even our theology. There is a danger in thinking that God can be figured out. And what I'm arguing here is this, that in our study of God, what should result is a greater humility and awe of his holiness. 
how unlike us he is, and how infinitely wonderful and mysterious are his ways. There is, in other words, something unsettling and unpredictable about following a holy and living God who is beyond our understanding and control. You know, it's much easier to sleep at night if we follow a God of our own making, isn't it? Who always does what we want him to. For all that Voltaire got wrong in his life, he did get one truth right when he said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Do you hear what Voltaire is saying? He's saying, when I look at religion, Why is it that the gods that you worship so often look just like you and do exactly what you think they ought to do? If God always meets your expectations and always acts in the way that you think he should, you may have to seriously question whether you are worshiping the holy living God of the Bible or the God of your own image. You know, as Joshua begins the conquest of the promised land, he has this encounter with an angelic being. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 to 15, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the armies of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You know, Joshua wonders as he meets this guy, say, hey, you on our side or are you against us? And, you know, when I kind of think about that, it seems like it would make sense. Since this guy is the commander of the Lord's armies, they would say, I'm on your side. After all, I mean, he was on the side of the Israelites, wasn't he? But there was a presumption in the way that Joshua asked the question that needed to be corrected. And so this angel says to him, you're asking the wrong question here. It's not about if I am aligned with you, but it's if you worship the God who will care for you. And so he says, neither. He tells Joshua instead, take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. The message to Joshua is clear. Your God is a holy God. He is other. He is transcendent. He does not pledge his allegiance to you. You bow to him in surrender and obedience. You know, as Pastor Peter alluded to, I don't think the kids really got it, but there's a lot of discord in America right now with the 2020 election coming. I see how much the church is even divided about Who represents the agenda of God? The Republicans or the Democrats? And listen, I think there is a civic duty as Christians to be involved with the political discourse. And that we ought to wrestle with how our faith should be expressed politically. But I want to say a word of warning to the church. I think we need to be very cautious when we try to claim and invoke God to our political platforms. It's one thing to say that there are some non-negotiables 
ethically and morally in Scripture. But how those apply when it comes to public policy and what the government should do is up for debate, a healthy debate. But I think there ought to be fear and trembling when we say God is on our side. I think there needs to be a humility there about invoking the name of God to our causes, our purposes, our agendas. I think that applies not only to politics, but in every sphere of life, even our theological stances. Think about how divided the church is and how we understand theology and what God is like and how arrogant we can become and dogmatic to think that we've cornered the market on truth and that we know better than every other church tradition who God is and what he's really like. And we, there needs to be, again, caution about that type of even theological arrogance to say we figured God out. I think we need to apply that personally in our lives. For those Christians among us, that every time something bad happens to you, it's spiritual warfare. And every time anything good happens to you, it's God's favor in your life. That's an airtight logic, isn't it? That then I guess you're blessed. <laughs> but is there a moment of pause to say, what is it really that God wants of me? What is it that he is addressing in my life? I think surrender is a very important expression of understanding the holiness of God. We see that obedience and surrender in Isaiah. So we read on in verses 6 to 8. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Feeling the weight of his sinfulness is a natural response to encountering the holiness of God. Isaiah experienced it when he saw the Lord. And Peter had a similar reaction when he saw Jesus, didn't he? Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. In response, the seraphim touches his mouth with a coal from the altar. And he takes away his guilt and atones for his sin. And I think this is another way in which God is totally unique in his holiness. There's this interesting passage in the book of Haggai. Where God tells his prophet to go to the priest and says, ask them a series of these questions. And see how they answer you. And so in Haggai 2 verse 11 it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and with this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. God's point is this, that a sacred object cannot make a common object sacred just by touching it. 
And then he says, if something is defiled, unclean, and it touches something clean, that unclean thing actually has the ability to make that clean thing unclean. The sad reality, in other words, is that unclean things can pollute clean things. But clean things cannot cleanse that which is defiled. But this is another way in which God is holy, unparalleled, unique in his creation. Is this, unclean things cannot defile God. But his holiness can cleanse that which is unclean. And so by touching Isaiah's lips with the coal from his altar, God was able to take away Isaiah's guilt and to atone for his sin. Jesus would demonstrate that same holy power when he would touch those who were unclean like the leper and the bleeding woman and declare them clean by his cleanliness. And this passage ends with God asking, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. It was a response of total surrender to God's will. I am available, Lord. Use me for whatever your purposes may be. And I want to say this. I don't think Isaiah's motivation was primarily that of fear. Like as if he was cowering, worried that God was going to strike him if he didn't obey. What I see in the passage here in chapter 6 is instead a picture of a prophet who has been totally consumed by a vision of the glory of God. And it's captured in that singular statement of his, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. You know, whenever you look in the Bible, God's holiness is almost always very closely tied with his glory. And the glory refers to his weightiness, his worthiness to receive honor and worship. And what it's saying that day is that Isaiah witnessed the glory of God as that glory filled the earth. And so what Isaiah experienced was this unparalleled beauty and worth of God. And it is out of that sense of holiness that God, that, that Isaiah pledged his unwavering surrender to God. Here am I. R.C. Sproul, again, in The Holiness of God, writes, We tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it but repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time, we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. I think that's a, a really good way to describe just this kind of schizophrenic encounter with the holiness of God, of at the same time being frightened of it and being repulsed by it almost, and on another side, being attracted to it and drawn to the beauty of it. You know, some of you know that in the 1980s and 90s, there was actually a huge revival that happened among Korean American churches. Started, uh, one of the places that it started was right here in the Chicagoland area. And I was a high school student in those days. And I remember in those days that when God was doing that work in these revival meetings and gatherings that, I mean, we were just being flipped upside down and 
We were gathering as high school students, no pastor present, no youth group pastor at all. It was just students. And we would go to each other's houses. And we would be there starting around 8 o'clock at night on Fridays and Saturdays until 1 or 2 in the morning in prayer meetings. And we'd get home and none of our parents believed us. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. You were at a prayer meeting until 2 a.m. And that's why you broke curfew. But I swear to God, that's what we were doing. We were praying. And I remember, and I shared this in another message before, but I remember that there were moments where I was just about to get into the car and drive to that revival meeting. And then I would just get this pit in my stomach. And I would almost have a panic attack. And I would think, I don't want to go anymore. Because you never knew what was going to happen at these revival meetings. And I remember after one of them, the work of God just was doing crazy things in my heart. And I went home and I just took my entire collection of rock and roll cassette tapes and threw it in the garbage. And the next week I regretted it so much, you know, because that was thousands of dollars of cassette tapes. And I'm not here to debate the merits of whether we should listen to rock and roll music or not. But the whole point was that was the kind of work of holiness God was doing in our hearts. And it was truthfully attractional and you're drawn to it and it terrified you because you just didn't know what was going to come out of the other side of that encounter with God. And I think that speaks a lot to what the nature of God's holiness is like. He is not tameable. He is not to be domesticated. He is to be worshipped and surrendered to and followed. Lewis wrote a lot about the inner witness of the human heart. This, what he called longing for something transcendent. Something that this world seems to whisper to us and give hints of, but never are able to fully realize. In other words, Lewis was writing about the longing in every human heart for the holy the holiness of God. And in his weight of glory, he writes, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that settled the matter. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country We have never yet visited our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off to be on the inside of some door, which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And I think that is what God's holiness is also about. When you encounter the holiness of God, yes, there is fear, but there is something that just resonates in your soul that this is what I've been searching for all of my life. 
And that's why we need regular encounters with the holiness of God. Because here is the truth of all of us, is we devote ourselves so lavishly to our idols, but are so stingy toward God. Isn't that true? We are so lavish in what we are willing to sacrifice for our idols. But we are always calculating the cost when it comes to worship. And what that reveals in all of us is the blindness that we have to the holiness of God. How worthy he is of our devotion and our surrender. So let me ask you, as you reflect on the holiness of God, can I ask you just to apply it in a few areas? Are there ways that you may be attempting to domesticate God, to control him, to manipulate him? Can I also ask, what about moments of disappointment with God? When we feel that God has really let us down, failed us, not met our expectations, what might a reflection on the holiness of God do to help us to understand that struggle within us? And then can I simply ask, what are you devoted to these days? What do you give your heart to? Is it to the living and holy God who stands among us, who alone is worthy of that devotion? I want to invite you into just a moment of prayer and reflection from this message, if you would. And here is my sincere prayer for every single one of us, that the scales of blindness would be lifted off, so that rather than seeing a God made in our own image, we would see the true living God of the Bible, a holy and awesome God who bids us to come and worship him and give him our all. Lay it all on his altar. And so would you just pray for a couple minutes before we come to the Lord's table and take communion and just maybe just say a simple prayer. God, I want to see you and see your glory as Isaiah saw it that day. Capture my heart once again so that I would understand fully the God that I worship, know you in my heart. We just pray that for a few minutes, and then I'm going to lead us in a time of response through the Lord's table.